Our first reading today is from Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Here in my office is the chair on which Archbishop Howard Mole sat when he attended the coronation of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth in 1953. And now the long reign of Queen Elizabeth II has come to an end. Throughout that time, in Anglican churches, we've prayed for her weekly. And today we give thanks to God for her long reign of dignity and grace, of humble and unstinting service, motivated by her deep and enduring Christian faith. We pray for King Charles III and for the royal family in their grief, that they would be comforted by the sure hope we have in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the hope in Jesus to which Her Majesty held throughout her life. As we thank God for the life and faith of Her Majesty the Queen, let us pray too that many others may discover the hope that we have found in Jesus. Well, by now you have heard the news. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. News of Her Majesty the Queen's passing from this life is news of sad tidings indeed, but also glad tidings. 
because Her Majesty the Queen is now in the presence of her King, the King of Kings, Jesus. And at the turn of the millennium, Queen Elizabeth II said of her and our Lord, and I quote, For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. In her Christmas address, a little later in, uh, sorry, a little earlier in uh, 1981, she said, Christ not only revealed to us the truth in his teachings, he lived by what he believed and gave us the strength to try to do the same. On the cross, he showed the supreme example of physical and moral courage. In 2014, Her Majesty said, for me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance, and healing. And finally, for us today, from her Christmas address in 2012, God sent his only son to serve and not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I can imagine that in our hearts we joined with our Archbishop Kanishka when he said that we are to give thanks to God for Her Majesty's humble and unstinting service motivated by her deep and enduring Christian faith. With uh, our brother Tony, I echo his prayers in which he led us, and I encourage us all to continue praying for His Majesty King Charles III every week. Pray that as the defender of the faith, the head of the Anglican Church, that he would read his Bible and that he would grow in faith and obedience to his king, the King of Kings. Would you join with me in praying for him in the weeks ahead, that he might be a good king? And today, as we spend time together in this fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, I hope that we too shall see, brothers and sisters, that we are royalty, that we are members of his royal family. Because in the sight of God, when we too put our faith in Jesus the Saviour and King, the one who on the cross died for our sins, we share in that eternal hope and the assurance of a home with Jesus forever. And he also calls us to lives of humility and unstinting service. It's a real challenge for us as we get into these three final chapters of Ephesians, but Paul has set us up well in the first three chapters. I'm going to pray that God would help us to understand his word. Uh, I'd love it if you join me in prayer. Shall we talk to our Father in heaven? Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the faith and obedience of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, your servant, for her faith in Jesus, for her example in serving Christ, the King of Queens and the King of Kings. You too call us to walk His way, we pray that today you would help us to do so for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So you will recall that our sermon series is called By Grace Through Faith, and as we've been thinking about what it means to live by grace through faith, we move now into the section that takes us through faith for work, for His service, and what it means as His royal family in this world to do His work. And we're going to look at this section under three titles, and the first one is this, Walk His Way, and that's verses 1 to 6. The old is gone, and the new has come. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth has gone to be with Jesus, and we now have a new king. A new person on the throne, but the same crown unites them. And I hope that this gives us a little bit of a picture of who we are as people who serve the King of Kings. And at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul starts his section with the word therefore. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it says therefore. And that's because we've been looking at who Jesus is and who we are as his uh, members of his family, as his servants in chapters 1 to 3. And we're now going to think about how we walk. And the challenge to us is to walk his way. And the only way in which we're going to do that, we'll see, is in unity in the power of his spirit. Um, when I first got to Australia, I was very blessed to have a Christian dad who kind of looked after me spiritually, and we used to go and have lunch together in the botanical gardens, and I don't know if you've noticed in the botanical gardens in Sydney, I'm not sure what it's like here in uh, Wollongong, but it does seem the Blue Mile's the spot for this, lots of people running up and down, lots of people going for walks, and he helped me see that people run and walk very differently from one another, so some people when they run, uh, they kind of run with this determination, <laughs> And other people, when they run, they kind of run with this loose sort of run. And have you noticed how people are very different in the ways in which they run and walk? Some people walk with heads held high, and some people walk hunched over. But the challenge for us as God's people is to walk in a particular way, and that is here expressed as to walk worthily. To walk worthily of the calling to which you were called. And in my mind's eye, I see a picture for all of us, whether we're hunched over or shoulders back, doesn't really matter, we're all different, right? But all of us walking worthily is to keep our eyes on the calling that we have, who we are as members of his royal family. So if you like, it's kind of eyes up, eyes on Jesus. And this idea that Paul picks up here in uh, verse 1 is a contrast to what he's described in the former way of life for these Gentiles, and indeed for many of us, a former way of life, uh, chapter 2, where once upon a time, as Shane showed us, we walked in our whoopsies and poopsies. We walked in such a way that was a contrast to how we now walk with him. And in fact, we see this walking idea come up in verse 17 of chapter 4, and then we see it a few times in chapter 5, and we're going to pick up on that in the days ahead, no doubt. And so the challenge for us is to think about what it means to walk his way. The Jews knew what it meant to be walking in his way, because what did they have? They had Torah. They had the Word of God, the law. They knew the way, what was called halakha, how to do the walk. And then they had the prophets and the writings. What did the Gentiles have? They only had creation to work with. Gave them no indication of what it meant to walk. And so Paul had the job of teaching them God's ways. And so when he says, I urge you, which is the big push behind Paul's emphasis here, him being a prisoner in chains for the Lord, to walk worthily of the calling to which you were called, what does he mean? 
Well, he tells us a little more in verses 2 to 3. He unpacks that to say, with humility and gentleness and patience. And how often have you heard those words? Is it the manner of the walk? And I don't know about you, but I hear these words banded about all the time. So I was thinking about what does this really mean? Well, humility, in essence, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's rather like the Lord Jesus, who has his eyes on the needs and interests of others, and he looks to them to serve, not to be served. It's keeping our eyes off ourselves and looking for opportunities for mutual love and benefiting others around us. Isn't that right? That's the true nature of humility that we see in him. And what about gentleness? Does that mean that we're doormats, that we're meek and mild and keep ourselves out of the public eye? Well, it seems to me that gentleness, as exhibited by the Lord Jesus, was an extraordinary conviction of the truths of his Father in heaven and an extraordinary expression of that character lived out in a life. And when Jesus had all character and all conviction and could have thrown his weight about justifiably, what he did was he lived in humility and gentleness. He kept that under control for the good of others and for the glory of God. And then when it comes to patience, well, you know, that's not the sort of patience that taps the finger or the foot as we're waiting for something to come about. This word patience is more about bearing with one another. Because let's face it, folks, we don't always get along, do we? We don't always like everybody. So people frustrate me. Do they frustrate you too? It's even possible on occasion that I might frustrate others. Can you imagine? But bearing with one another in patience and doing that journey together is what God's saying here through Paul with humility and gentleness and patience. Now, let me ask you a question. How good are you at that? Are you getting better? Um, yeah, we all learn lessons in life, but ultimately, are you getting better because of you or in spite of you? Because I think what Paul wants to show us is that when we bear with one another in love, making, verse 3, every effort to keep the bond of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, he's actually going to show us that it's about God at work in and through us more than it is our efforts. In fact, as we walk, as he brings this idea up in Galatians 5, we're keeping in step with his Spirit as we keep our eyes on Jesus. In fact, unity is described in the Old Testament by the psalmist, 133, good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I don't know about you, but I find this a pretty weird psalm. Like, I read on. I, I quite like that first sentence, right? But then I read on and I read, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. Like, that's not a good picture for me. Like, I, I had a big bushy beard during COVID, and when I'd find bits of honey or food in there, that wasn't, that wasn't like, you know, that wasn't the quality thing. You know, I made the joke with my kids, I'm saving it for later. But you feel a bit of a, and, and when you do, I mean, just yesterday I was in, um, involved with a wedding, and I, before I went, I, I tell you this, it's, don't tell anybody, I, I dropped some food on my jacket. And I'm like, oh man, you know, this is not a good, but, but here is a great image. It's great image because it's the anointing of oil, which represents what? That Aaron had been set apart for a holy service of God, to be his priest. And this is a good thing. It represents 
what God is doing through him as an anticipation of the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, when unity and peace will come for all eternity. Again, Israel, God's people, constantly fail to be unified. But Jesus said, one day you're going to have a unique unity when I come. And through Paul, Paul describes here in verses 4 to 6 what that unity looks like. Just as you were called to one hope in your calling, what are you? We are one body under one spirit. This is an amazing set of verses here. I mean, you could do a PhD on like the Trinitarian nature of God because Father, Son, and Spirit are all identified in here. And we see also God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's so much we could unpack, but I'm going to leave that for you to do over coffee or maybe write your PhD on. But for today, what I want us to think about is the fact that this is not a burden of walking, it's learning to walk. Enabled by the Spirit, we learn to walk together. And we can trust that the one Spirit who indwells us the Spirit of the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, will teach us and help us learn His promises and let that overflow and come out in our lives. So the big idea for point one is this, by grace through faith, united by His Spirit, we can walk His way. And then we move on. Secondly, verses 7 to 12, uh, Paul wants to unpack a bit more about this big grace gift of Jesus, his grace gift with a big G and his grace gifts with a, a little g. If um, the first section is to remind us that we belong to the king and we can walk his way by the unity he gives by his spirit, uh, he's going to show us in verses 7 to 12 how that grace gift of his spirit and the grace gift of one another enables us to continue in the mission he's given us. Some people will say that this verse is uh, referred to the apostolic mission, the Jewish apostolic mission, and that it's historically situated. Some people will tell you that it's the current Gentile apostolic mission and that it's, it's situated in today. And some of us will say, well, it could apply to both because God's quite clever like that and he knows his people then and now. I go with option number three. Again, we can debate that together in our life groups or over coffee. But let me show you what we can say with certainty from these verses. Number, se oh, sorry, number seven, verse seven, sentence seven. Uh, he gave us grace. Now to each of us, grace has been given as Christ, Messiah, gifted it. <clears throat> Where's his grace in your life? The very breath that you just took is his grace. The blood that courses through our arteries and veins is His grace. The world within which we live and move and have our being, the creation that He has given us to enjoy and care for, that's His grace. One another, that's His grace. His church family is His grace. And above all, His grace to us in the person of His Son, Jesus, about whom we have sung already. You see, yes, there is the Jewish apostolic mission to the Gentiles, and yes, there is the Gentiles apostolic mission to the world, and indeed back to the Jews now, but now we are one. Paul has shifted thoroughly in chapters 4 to 6 to say, we are one in this mission. Paul had a very particular role, but today as we read these words of God, people who were once dead spiritually have been moved to life in Christ, and we have been given His work to do. Does He leave us alone to do that? Well, of course not. That's what Paul describes for us in verses 8 to 10. It says, having ascended on high, he captivated captives and he gave gifts to his people. 
It's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18, and if you have a moment, go and have a look at that and see how that's rendered differently. And have a chat with your friends at Life Group and your family maybe about what that might mean, because I found this a bit confusing. I think I have an answer, but I'm going to give it to you to play with that one. More importantly, I want us to see for now that what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly space? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order that he may fill all things. You see again the theme of Ephesians 1 verse 10, that Jesus will fill all things. I think that's the ascension of Jesus. He ascended. The disciples witnessed that, didn't they? You remember? He went up into the clouds after he gave them the grand commission that we read about in Matthew and Luke's testimonies, and, and then they're, they're looking at the sky. That's not the sort of looking that Jesus meant, looking up at the sky, waiting for him to come back. The messengers of Jesus came down and said, hey guys, what are you doing? Get on with the job, the work he gave you to do. But, but you're not ready just yet. You will receive power, said Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what do we see? That happened, didn't it, in Acts 2, which is when Jesus descended in the person of the Spirit. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit, down comes the Spirit so that he might enable the Jewish apostles to declare the identity and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And the same Spirit lives in us today, doesn't he? The Spirit of God indwelling us. And then we see from Paul, and again I just want to give a little nod to our series on 1 Corinthians 12 as we get into these verses, and if you didn't have a chance to hear that series, it's online on our sermons on the website. We then read that Jesus gave the gift of the Spirit and gifts. Verse 11, he gave some, indeed, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. Those are individual roles, aren't they? individual peoples, but one spirit, one church, serving the collective. And right there we see verse 12 that his purpose in giving these people is to prepare, even perfect, his saints, his chosen ones, his royal family, for the work of service. One work. God's work for building up the body of Christ. You see, we together have a work that he has given us to do as individuated members of his body. We can look back in history and we go to ourselves, well, of course, there was James. He was the pastor teacher in Jerusalem. And we go to ourselves, well, there was Peter. And he, well, which role did he have? He was the apostle to the Jews. We had Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. We had Philip. You remember what he did? He was described as the evangelist. Differentiate, excuse me, hard word, right? Differentiated roles to achieve the same thing, to tell people about Jesus, to teach people about Messiah. But then we go, well, what about today? Because we have apostles, don't we? People who are sent by God to establish new church fellowships. We have people who are evangelists. We have people like Langdon and Rod and others who have a particular in my view, big E evangelist gift that God has given us. We have prophets. We can have a bit of a debate about what a prophet is. Prophet being somebody who foretells the future, somebody who's a prophet who foretells the gospel, somebody in history. Is that possible? Actually, let me share with you a little quote um, from Stuart Piggin. Some of you will know Stuart. He's an historian. They're great historians, aren't they? 
even better, Christian historians. Like, I know in our tertiary institutions, we're kind of giving history the flick a bit. Yeah, right, read this, listen to this. History, says Stuart, has a prophetic function, does it? According to Stuart, as one of the roles of the historian is to be prophetic. You've got to try and understand how the future is being shaped, and the only way the future is being shaped is by the past. And I think the more you understand the past, the more you've got a chance of shaping the future. Prophets are always a minority, they're rare. I don't know if I'm a prophet, I like that. I don't know if I'm a prophet, but that's what history should do at, his, at its best. So you've got to understand your history in order to understand what the possibilities are for the future. So I reckon there is a past, present, future reality. To pro- well, God's the God beyond time, right? There's a bit of food for thought. But it does seem to me that today we do have church planters and historians and gospelers and, and we have a ministry team. <coughs> Actually, we have more than a ministry team, don't we? We have all of us. We're his royal family, all of us. Do you remember I was saying from 1 Corinthians 12, not one of us is an appendix left without a gift? That's true. Uh, while I'm on the ministry team, um, I'm going to do a quick public service announcement. It's very important that I share this news with you. Um, we're having a little bit of a change in our ministry team next year. Uh, very wonderfully, and with my full support, uh, Josh Hawkins, our youth minister, well, half of the dynamic duo of uh, Josh and Ruth Barnes, uh, has been offered and has accepted a position to be a full-time permanent teacher over at the Illawarra Christian School from next year. That's cause for celebration. Um, I wonder if you'd pray for him as he transitions. Oh, good on you. But it's a bit sad, right? Now, he's staying at the church, which is wonderful, and will continue to serve as a member of the body here, but uh, it just means that he's stepping down and creating a vacancy. So can I ask you also to pray that the Lord would raise somebody up from amongst our own, most likely, I think, to come into that place? Um, can I ask you to consider, if the Lord moves you by His Spirit, to maybe come and talk to one of the ministry team about that? And um, we'd love to see whom the Lord has in mind to move into that very critical discipling space amongst our youth in the year ahead. But there's always roles to do within the ministry team. There's always roles to do then within our life groups and then more broadly within the church family because each and every one of us is indwelt by His Spirit. And you'll notice with these roles that the primary emphasis for the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers, which I think is one person, pastor coordinating conjunction brings together pastor and teacher, is what? What's the ministry? It's the ministry of the Word. The Word of God. The teaching of the Word of God is what enables and prepares His saints for the work of service, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to move us to the final point, which is this, in verses 13 to 14, what the building up of the body of Christ looks like, because uh, the word that Paul uses here is not only unity in the faith, but also maturity. Unity in the faith, in verse 13, he describes, uh, until we may reach all unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, a completed man in maturity being the fullness of Christ. Again, we see that link back to chapter 1, verse 10, 
that all things are being brought together in Messiah, things in heaven and on earth, in him. This is God's plan and purpose for us as a royal family, that we would finally be together under and in our king, the king of kings. But that unity, which is through maturity, comes as a result of not being waylaid by teaching that takes us off all over the place into other things. I mean, everything that we say and do and pray comes as a result of our beliefs, right? And as we look at verse 14, Paul says that this unity under the Word of God and the promise that through the power of the Spirit growing us up together as His church is in order that we may no longer be like little infants. Little ones tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Brothers and sisters, in our lives and in the lives of our children and our children's children, can I say that they and we are being bombarded with every conceivable teaching to influence and shape our beliefs that is not scriptural. It's what the Prince of the Air loves, to waylay us and confuse us. Let us together keep coming back to the Word of God as we gather on a Sunday. Let us get together and make sure that we're all in life groups where we can shape one another in sitting under the Word of God and let us within our families at least once in a week make an effort to gather with our little ones and train them and teach them and encourage them to be immersed and saturated in God's Word. We need to be grown up in Him so that we would not be waylaid by the cunning of men and the craftiness of deceitful scheming. Does that make sense? It does, doesn't it? And, and, and so Paul says in verses 15 and 16 to kind of close off this little section that it's really important that in the family home um, things are kept in order. Everyone plays their part. I, I mean, in your home it's probably a little bit like ours. Not everybody wants to do household chores. Sometimes you get one person who gets a bit grumpy. I have to confess, sometimes that's even me. Who <laughs> says, oh, I don't want to do the chores this week. I'm too busy. I'm not in the mood, you know, bing, bang, bong, whatever. Um, so sometimes, do you find in the family budget, you don't always want to keep the budget? I'd really like to buy this for myself or for somebody else. Or let's go, you know, and, and even in family relationships, of course, to keep unity, we've got to keep creating playful space. The point is that we've all got to play our part. So Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we should grow up into him through his work in us, and it's always the work of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. Let us not be foolish enough to think that we in any way in and of ourselves are going to head in the right direction. <laughs> By His grace, always. Grow up in all things into our bodily head, Christ, the King, the one who wears the crown. From Him, the whole body, joined together, held together by every supporting ligament according to the measure of work done by each part. There's one work of service, His work, but each part has a part to play. Each and every one of us has a role to play, we're told, so that the measure of increasing maturity occurs as his body is building itself up in love. It's partial now, but it will be completed one day. You know, this weekend's been an extraordinary weekend. There was a lovely marriage next door in the hub. Many of you will know Sam Jones and Lucia Sanchez. Um, they have been waiting for some time in the period of dating and then the period of courtship and then you know, engagement, and then it all came together uh, on Saturday. What a lovely thing it was to see God make a new family. 
Husband and wife bound together. Great thing to look forward to. It's just beginning for them. Brothers and sisters, we're still in the engagement period in a way. We're in the now but not yet. The marriage has not yet come. But Jesus, the King of Kings, is coming for his bride. Weird for the blokes to feel like a bride, but we are part of the bride. We're not queens, but we are part of the body of Christ. And we are looking forward to meeting our Saviour, Jesus, who will bring us together as a royal family. I want to finish this dangerous thing to do with the words other than the Word of God, but I'm going to share with you the final chapter of the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. This is a reminder that we are his royal family. By grace, through faith, for his work, because we are his royal family. You may remember the school children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, very sadly at the end. Spoilers, if you haven't read the series, they all die. <laughs> They're killed. In a, I'm sorry for those of you who are online who were not expecting to hear that. They do, they die. There's a train accident, and it's very, very sad. But actually, they're described as leaving the shadowlands of the earth and Narnia. Uh, school children in England, but they were kings and queens in Narnia. And great King Aslan greets them into their new home, and he says these words, I quote, Term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. You see, those characters fought great spiritual battles during their lifetime in Aslan's service but he called them into his royal family and they live happily ever after in C.S. Lewis' fable. And we go, well, it's just a fable, isn't it? It's a story for little kids. We tell that to our kids because we want to encourage them with a metaphor. But it reflects the reality, brothers and sisters, of who we are. We belong to the great King Jesus. And just as those children become adults in the story, we are growing up as God's children, as members of his royal family, his majesty, the king, is the king of kings. Her majesty, the queen's majesty, is the king. And we too delight to follow him. May it be that we now surrender ourselves into unstinting service for him in all humility. Let me pray that we would do that by the power of his spirit and in his strength. Father God, we thank you for the unity that we have under the crown of many crowns. We thank you, Father, for the humility in our Lord Jesus the grace you have shown through him that he first wore a crown of thorns before he took on the crown of glory. Help us to weather the crowns of thorns that we may now wear as members of his royal family as we continue to be doing the good work that you've prepared for us as your servants and servants of one another, knowing that we are adopted children and royalty. What a privilege it is, Father God that we belong to King Jesus, walking his way by unity in his spirit. Give us grace in our relationships with one another to keep one another on track with this apostolic mission of declaring the good news of Jesus as King. And thank you for your promise that our union with Christ through your spirit will continue to enable us to grow up, no longer be infants, pushed this way and that by every wind of teaching, but staying true to the truths that you have revealed through your word and in the person of Jesus as his church for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Thank you.